This is CJ Costigal, and you're listening to Pro Lacrosse Talk. On Shriver. Snyder with Scott. Now it's Brian Fidel scores. Paul Rabel splits two and scores. Kylie O'Miller showing off those shifty skills. Kelly, not shy, bounces one home. What a start. Welcome to Pro Lacrosse Talk, the voice of Pro Lacrosse. I'm Hutton, he's Adam, and together we're bringing you interviews with your favorite players and coaches, as well as news from all four professional lacrosse leagues. I'm here with CJ Costabile, long stick midfielder with the Chesapeake Bayhawks and 2019 MLL champion. CJ, welcome to the show. I appreciate uh, you guys for having me. So CJ, you're a native of uh, New Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, when did you first pick up your stick, and at one point did you start playing uh, long pole as well as facing off? So I started playing lacrosse actually in fourth grade. Uh, so I was very, very fortunate where my parents were kind of my brother and I chauffeur, and they would let us play any sport under the sun. So we were playing hockey, we were playing football, we were playing soccer, and then also baseball. So, you know, a lot of sports that we were playing all kind of have a unique feature where they're kind of fast-paced and moving, Mm -hmm. except for baseball. And um, it's funny because, you know, there's a big difference between when you go from the pitching machine to all of a sudden kids actually pitching, right? Mm -hmm. Where all of a sudden these baseball games all of a sudden go for three hours long because kids can't hit. The strike zone. Mm-hmm. So unless you're playing pitcher or you're just playing catcher, it's a very, very boring game, and I don't really have the intention span for it. Yeah. Uh, so it was funny because it just so happened that one of my neighbors, uh, we were actually living in Brewster, New York at the time, uh, he was actually the head coach of Yorktown High School. And he always okay. used to tell my dad, like, you guys got to, uh, you know, get, you know, my dad's name Steve. Like, Steve, you got to get the guys, uh, kids in the lacrosse. And he's like, ah, oh, like, they're not going to play with that, what is that, a fishnet, a butterfly net <laughs> on the top of that thing or whatever. And so so we never really did it. And then I was, like, sitting there, I'm like, Dad, like, I can't do this baseball thing anymore. Like, let's try something. So it's funny. So my first lacrosse experience was uh, the Brewster lacrosse camp. Uh, so okay. Brewster's a town right over from New Fairfield uh, and did it. And honestly, I fell in love with the sport. Uh, it was kind of everything I wanted because you had this combination of all these other sports, uh, compacted one with like hockey, basketball, and a lot of elements of football, uh, kind of all really tied into it. And, uh, you know, played in fourth grade, uh, you know, fell in love with it, kind of ran with it. And, you know, in terms of kind of doing the long pole aspect of it, I ended up getting a long pole in fifth grade. Uh, so it was a five, it was a five foot stick though. And then Greg graduated, because at first, initially, I was trying to play with a six-foot pole, and I was tripping over it, because I was mm-hmm. a small six-foot pole. So I ended up grabbing a five-foot uh, pole, did that for about a year, and in sixth grade, I was running around with a six-foot pole. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to face-offs, actually doing it competitively, I didn't start until probably in high school, actually, uh, just because there's just no one that else could take them, so it was just kind of like, Hey, tag it, CJ, you're it. Uh, I'll get at the X. And by no means did I ever think that was kind of my role. I never really enjoyed taking face-offs. Uh, face-offs are a, you know, it's a daunting on the body, mm-hmm. uh, especially at the collegiate level, um, where, you know, back when I took face-offs, it was very much more, you know, I tell folks, it's much more about willpower, if that makes sense. Meaning that, you know, there was no, like, setting the ball, guys getting to make sure their sticks are parallel, perpendicular. It was just a dogfight where you literally, it was, you ro- everyone rolled into the whistle. It was a set whistle right into it, and it was just a free-for-all. And it was just kind mm-hmm. of a matter of willpower. But, 
no, it's, uh, I mean, fortunately I've had some good moments taking some face offs, but not necessarily my favorite or uh, fondest memories are at, uh, participating in that uh, part of the game. At least wings fun, don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. The draws it actually could be a little, uh, little wear and tear on the body, so to speak. So you kind of talked about growing up playing the game and you were able to use your skill set and, and go play at Duke. What ultimately led you to deciding to play for Coach Donowski and the Blue Devils? The beauty of it, which was very fortunate, and again, I think a lot of guys look at lacrosse, is that lacrosse affords you the ability to, I mean, a lot of the top lacrosse programs are top, top academic institutions. Sure. Mm-hmm. So when I was going through the process, you know, my top four in terms of my choices were ended up being Duke, uh, Notre Dame, Princeton, and Georgetown. Okay. And, you know, when you look at it, you know, you look at a couple of elements here, right? So for me, you know, lacrosse was definitely the focal point in the sense that I wanted to play against the best competition in the world. And what that meant at the collegiate level was playing the ACC. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I grew up in New Fairfield, Connecticut, playing lacrosse. Um, New Fairfield really, I mean, I, I, my group of friends and I, we were the first real group to go through the youth program and actually fortunate enough to win a state championship, uh, Class S my senior year, which is kind of a cool experience. Uh, but at the same time as playing Connecticut lacrosse, you know, I was never really kind of a part of, that Connecticut crew, right? Because I wasn't from sure. Greenwich. I wasn't from New, uh, Wilton, New Canaan, or Darien. And, you know, I always had this kind of chip on my shoulder where I wanted to always play to play with the best because I wanted to prove myself against the best. Mm-hmm. I played in something called the SWC, uh, which is Southwest Conference Lacrosse. Uh, not the most uh, competitive league, to say the least. I, you know, I enjoyed playing high school. I got to play with my friends. But in terms of my development or I feel like, you know, it wasn't like I was playing against top tier programs from Long Island or Maryland, what have you. So I always wanted to prove. So the step one was finally a program where I was able to compete for a national championship. The second aspect you look at is going to be, you know, academics. You know, the fortunate is that there's no, you know, million dollar contract in, you know, the professional lacrosse rankings. Uh, and, you know, that commercial where, you know, NCAA athletes are going to go pro something other than sports yeah. is pretty uh, pretty prolific in the sport of lacrosse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to go to a school that was top, it was a top 10 academic institution. And to me, Duke fit that, being kind of, you know, in the top 10, uh, where I was going to be able to, you know, not only to challenge myself athletically, but also academically as well. And then, you know, the last element you got to really look at is the social aspect. And I think this kind of, and it's tough, especially within early recruiting now, is the fact that you really need to get along with the guys on the team. Like, do you fit with the other, say, call it 39 individuals? You know, because you, you have to have this understanding that you're going to live with these guys. You're going to go out with them. You're going to eat with them. You're going to go to class with them. You're going to go to practice with them. So if you do not feel that you fit within the culture of that team, that's going to be, you know, make, a, make your life very tough for four years. And it's funny because I remember the first time I visited Duke was when my parents and I was during like one of my winter breaks and we were doing the uh, kind of the traveling road show of college visits for CJ. And, you know, so I remember we went to Loyola, I remember we went to Georgetown, I remember we going to Maryland, I remember we going to Hopkins. And Duke was actually the last stop. And I ended up ultimately doing it overnight. And just something about the air there, but what really sold me was the guys. 
you know, just the, the want and desire to excel in all aspects of life is what's really sold me on the school, um, and which is ultimately ended up why I ended up deciding to commit there, mm-hmm. uh, which happened, took place in June of my junior year, which was actually on the, like, earlier side of the recruiting process. I mean, actually, the earliest person in my year that committed was Steel Stanway, who committed June, or sorry, September, October of his junior year, which obviously okay. the landscape has changed very different, uh, it's much different than today. Where you have, I mean, what freshmen, if not even eighth graders, committing at this point. So, but those are kind of the main three reasons why you know how I looked at it. Yeah, no, that's great. That's kind of taking a whole comprehensive uh, approach to it, and um, you know, and you certainly excelled when you were at Duke. I mean, you recorded 376 ground balls, 67 caused turnovers, and you know, you kind of proved your versatility too, scoring 22 goals and 20 assists, and having a 53 percent face-off percentage at the end of it. You're a USILA All-American and a national champion in 2010, which we'll talk about a little bit after this, but you really transformed that LSM position, not only just being a fourth defender on the field, but a threat to score. You know, you talked about it a little bit in high school, but did you kind of get free range from Coach Janowski when you were at Duke to kind of, you know, push it in transition? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think, I mean, I think that's definitely evident. Thank God he didn't call a timeout in 2010 on me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, you know. Again, I think that was always my biggest asset in terms of my versatility. I told you if they ever like went to like, you know, like a like an OT like Braveheart, I think I was kind of the quintessential per- perfect person for that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, if there's ever like a Braveheart tournament where you know, I mean, like, things just trying to work on all aspects of the game. I mean, like, I mean, I, the thing is, I played a lot of different sports, but I mean, I always had a lacrosse stick in my hand in some capacity when I was playing football or even in the winter playing hockey and like you know I loved all aspects of it have the ability to play alongside committee and like I always enjoyed in between the line stuff right we Mm -hmm. all think about lacrosse like the fun action really happens in between the lines like you know lacrosse fans what they love to see is odd man situations right it's very simple but at the same time it's just very I don't think majestic is the right word but at the same time is like that's where kind of the excitement comes into play so if you're able to you know, kind of wreak havoc and, you know, inflict some damage and pain in somebody's life, take the ball away, and then on top of it, inflicting more damage by putting the ball in the back of the net to help your team win, like, I don't know, I kind of got, got a kick out of that, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, just trying to be a student of the game as much as possible and just, you know, doing anything possible to allow your team to win. You know, that, that, that to me is where, you know, you just got to kind of, sometimes you just got to step up. You know, I look at, you know, my like face-offs-wise, like, I did it because that's what was required of me to do it. You know, that's kind of, I think I'd probably attribute, I guess, versatility more on that side where, you know, listen, you dedicate so much time to it. You want to be successful. You know, I look at my, you know, my tenure at Duke, we had a really great team. I mean, talking about great teams. I mean, you know, my career, four final fours, two ACC championships and a national championship my sophomore year. So, you know, it's, pretty humbling to have that because you know most people don't even get to even experience a final four that's awesome and you know we'd be remiss to if we didn't talk about that game winner in the national championship that gave duke its first ever uh championship what was going through your head uh when you won that cleanly and took it down the field obviously you said you were glad coach uh didn't call a timeout there but what was going through your head you know what's going honestly it's funny you say that so like now, if you kind of really, really want to dissect it a little bit, you know, I look at it from, I remember I was, so caught the, la- like, again, I wasn't taking the main draws. I wasn't taking the opening face off. 
uh, Sam Payton, who was our captain, and he was a freak athlete. He was an absolute stud. It was kind of the guy. And then, you know, in the face-off game, I mean, as a lot of folks know, I mean, it's a battle of rock, paper, scissors, shoe, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Certain guys beat certain guys, you know, where maybe I beat one guy, uh, and then all of a sudden I have trouble with this guy, but then the guy who I beat can actually beat the other guy. And, you know, I mean, granted, there wasn't a lot of face-offs in that game. Was, I, mean, I always tell people, it's funny, like, my the, my favorite game I've ever been a part of in my life was the semifinal game when we played Virginia, where we ended up winning mm-hmm. by a uh, goal 14 That was by far my favorite game I've ever been. Whereas you go to the kind of, you know, when we played Notre Dame, I mean, it's 6-5. It was a defensive fest, a snooze yeah. fest in terms of a spectator game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, kind of, you know, they were putting me out there as kind of being the hot hand. And I remember kind of like, like, call with like, say, about 10, 12 seconds left in the fourth quarter. You know, you look at what Scotty Rogers was able to do. I mean, yeah. he on his, stood on his head. I mean, the amount of crease saves that that guy made with his tree trunk of legs was just absolutely outrageous. <laughs> and, you know, so I'm sitting there, like 12 seconds or so left, we have the ball. And I remember just kind of like sitting on the bench, just like, all right, like, listen, you got to, you know, you know, not mentally prepare, but in a sense, just get ready for this, you know. And I remember like Coach Gabs, who was our defensive coordinator at the time, came over, just kind of like patted me on the shoulder and kind of like moved on. And like, you know, I heard the whistle blow. I wasn't watching any of this last 12 seconds. Uh, I remember just kind of sitting there, just like in my hands, just thinking like, all right, listen, here's the deal. Like, just just win the ball. Like, mm-hmm. you have a lot of great athletes on, you know, great offensive guys. Get them the ball and just get them the best shot, shot opportunity so that we can win this thing in overtime. And I remember kind of sitting there and kind of like when I was on the bench, because obviously the guys are blocking the view of the stadium, of, of the field, I'm sorry. And you're sitting there, and you're just like, all right, I'm just waiting to hear something. Like, meaning, like, you know, cheers of some sort. Like, oh, sure. something going. And obviously, nothing. You know, clock went down to zero. No one came out. So then I was like, all right, like, this is it. So we're going into overtime. And literally, like I said, the biggest thing that I was looking at doing was just be like, all right, let me get the ball for our guys. That was mm-hmm. it. You know, you don't want to, like, and the thing is, like, you know, it's interesting because you play in front of, like, 40 people. And obviously, in the NFL stadiums, you play anywhere between, say, 30 to 55,000 people on championship weekend. But the field dimensions are the same. The rules are the same. So, like, you know, the idea to kind of go out there and just be like, all right, just do what you do and kind of go from there. Uh, and, you know, I remember kind of referees kind of go in there, you know, give a kind of whole spiel, you know, down, set, whistle. And what I was – I'm big at was jamming. So, basically, the idea is that just violently punch your left hand through your opponent's stick so that they cannot clamp down onto the ball. Mm-hmm. And I remember I ended up jamming him, and I felt like I was much quicker on the whistle uh, than he was. And the ball was kind of there up front. So what I do is I take the stick, push it kind of through, and then basically now had a ground ball uh, opportunity where I was able to pick it up on my my own. And what I think a lot of people don't realize, too, is the face-off game is not just about the two guys who are – you know, down on the ground, right? It's really sure. a three-on-three battle. Mm-hmm. And I find, even like now, when I'm, I'm very amazed at the pro rankings, just how little wing play is really taught. Because at Duke, what we really focus on is boxing out, right? The idea mm-hmm. is that you don't yeah. want, you know, you want to box out and make sure that those wing guys cannot affect the face-off. And I, think at Duke, I don't think of anyone else who did it any better than what was at Duke. I mean, that was really instilled into us. Right, so it's really not—it's not a one-on-one battle, but a three-on-three battle. And you know, I bring that up because I remember—I remember picking up this ball, and all of a sudden, I'm like, I got an open lane here. 
Mm-hmm. So I pick it up and I'm running and, you know, I look at kind of like left and right and I don't see anyone uh, like I, my guys are doing a great job boxing out, giving me a lane. And what's great also about these NFL stadium is that you have lines, right? So you kind of know where you are on the field. Mm-hmm. So you know that the GLE is at the 10 yard line. And then in M&T bank where the game was, you know, that the 20 yard line has those purple kind of outer lines on it. Designate that meaning that you're basically 10 yards from the goal at that point. Yeah. So I remember running and like, all right, like you're waiting for the slide here. And, you know, I, you know, hundred percent where it's going to come from, but I'm running and, you know, it's very interesting, especially times when games in overtime, right. And, you know, you look at it where guys don't want to be the fall guy. Meaning mm-hmm. like, you know, people have a tough time sliding because, you know, it's like, Oh, like I don't want my guy to be the one who scored because then it's my fault. But at the same time is, it's a four-on-three break. Like, you got to – someone's got to pick up ball. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the way I look at it, I mean, like, my sophomore year, I got hurt early. I started kind of finally feeling more back healthy in my um, – towards, you know, towards playoff time, actually. But, you know, if I'm running down the field, I just remember running. I'm like, all right, I'm going to look to pass it off. I mean, like, you know, who's going to be opening? Like, Ned, like Ned's going to be there. I can throw it to Ned. That's going to be fine. Or I did like throwing a lot of times cross, like, to, like, say, that righty uh, shooter. So mm-hmm. Zach Howell, but at the same time, if I'm Notre Dame, right, my game plan would probably be let me shoot, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about it, it's like, all right, you got Ned Crotty, who's going to win the tour in that year. You got Zach Howell, who I was I think is a 50-plus goal scorer that year. And on the left-hand side, you got Max Quinzani. Mm-hmm. And Max was one goal shy of way of 200 career goals. And he so, put the team on the, his back, too, in that semifinal game, essentially. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that great cover uh, shot that he had of him. So, you know, of that of those four, then you got me, the sophomore kid. Like, I, you know, who are you going to – with a long pole, who are you going to let shoot the ball? So I just remember running down the field, and as soon as I hit that purple line, I was like, all right, no one slipped to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of let this thing fly. And it's funny because, you know, especially the long pole, the biggest thing you worry about is trail checks. Mm-hmm. So when I run through the field, you make sure that I basically have my stick up in front of myself and you want to keep it really high, right? Because you want to keep the angle so that it's very difficult for the goalie to track. Mm-hmm. And what you're taught as a defenseman is you want to shoot for upper corners, right? So the idea here is that if you miss, at least you can just get it back up, no problem. Because the worst thing in the world is when you run transition, you hit the goalie in the stick, right? And it's popcorn going the other way. Because then you've mm-hmm. got to get on your horse, yep. tired. Uh, it's just the worst experience. And then if they score, then you feel like even worse. Like it's kind of like a, kind of a two-goal swing, so to speak. I remember kind of just, like, shooting kind of as high as possible. And, like, I remember, like, I shot it falling down. And basically where the ball de- – and I remember just sitting there. I kind of slid. And I just remember watching. And, I mean, the scouting report for us was to shoot low on Scotty uh, Rogers, who's the goalie for Notre Dame. And mm-hmm. I just remember seeing him just go low. Like, and, like, all I remember seeing is the back of the net just kind of move. Or basically it seemed like where the ball went, where basically where his head would have been if he didn't kind of guess low a little bit. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing the net move and like, you know, the first, like it was, and like all of a sudden, like you just sit there, I see the net move and I'm just like, wow. Like you kind of like takes like kind of a second to digest. And like, sure. I didn't hear any of the crowd, any of that. So what I ended up hearing though was I just remember hearing Max Quinzani. So on my right side, and I just hear, hear him say, Oh my God. But as he <laughs> He's, his voice cracks like he just went through puberty. 
<laughs> I'm just like, oh my god, this is it, this is over. I remember just grabbing him and like just hugging him, and you know, you sit there, you're hugging and like you know, Zach and Ed, and all of a sudden, like next thing you know, the whole team's kind of like dog pile rush, and then you're at the bottom of this pile, <laughs> and you know, you're sitting there and you're getting absolutely crushed, like I, you can't breathe. Uh, Steve Shuffle was a mini for us. You know, his helmet came off. I remember Zach's, like, literally trying to cradle his he- helmet, his head so he doesn't, like, you know, so his head doesn't get crushed. And I remember sitting there, just, like, you know, I'm sitting there, like, just, like, I can't breathe. But I was just so happy that I did not care in the least. Like, I sat there and just, like, wow, this is it. Like, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, that's the goal. I mean, that's, like, the pinnacle of it all in terms of lacrosse is to win on that weekend, to have a moment on that. And then, you know, what people don't realize is, I mean, your season starts in August, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. You have a fall season. I mean, like we, you know, you run and lift, you play lacrosse, you get up at six, seven o'clock a.m. in the morning at Duke, and you practice a couple hours and you go to class. Like people don't see all that, all the hard work that goes into it. And then, I mean, you spend a couple hours playing and let alone, oh my God, Matt, if you get hurt, you're spending like five or six hours, you know, mm-hmm. at Murray building in our case, you know, getting healthy and getting prepared. So to have, you know, I mean, that all that emotion just comes, it just all comes to the top. And then, like, you know, obviously you look at what, certain, what some of those guys went through in 2006 and the kind of, you know, you know, you don't, always, you don't always necessarily get storybook endings. And, like, you know, I'm very fortunate to have that moment for those guys. Uh, and, you know, it was just, you know, I just, it was just honestly, like, it was just surreal. Like, mm-hmm. again, like, you sit there and, like, I mean, that's, uh, to me, the equivalent of, you know, in the World Series, you know, bases loaded, game seven, you know, you're up at deck and you hit a grand slam to win, like, walk, like, it's, uh, it's very, very humbling to say the least. And, you know, you know, I always sit there and like, wow, like, I peaked my sophomore year in college. Like, I don't know, I don't know where it goes up from there. (laughs) It's, uh, it's a a pretty good moment to say the least. And I'm just very fortunate to obviously share it with my teammates as well. So, um, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't really think about it too much anymore. I'm getting older, but it kind of brings it brings back a little chill sometimes when I talk about okay. it. So, no, appreciate yeah. that, guys. Yeah, no, it was, it's awesome. I mean, I remember watching it. Um, I nearly missed it because I I was watching the whole game, and I was like, all right, they're going to overtime. Like, let me go like, get some food or whatever. I was at my cousin's house, and I remember like walking down and just seeing you win the face off and you score. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's it. They just won it what grade was I in I must have been I was in high school then um so yeah for me it was like that's kind of what you know I ended up playing in college at the D3 level and you know Adam did as well but that ended up being kind of like that's what you always aspired to you know you wanted to play on championship weekend you wanted that moment and um you know I don't know it was just awesome to watch and it's great hearing you kind of recount that story because you know it's kind of nice to see like you know we me and Adam both witnessed it from a fans perspective but now to hear you know behind the scenes like what was going through your head it's it's awesome so i appreciate you counting that story it's cool i mean you hear a lot of cool stories from people i mean like it's funny like so brendan fowler like one of my you know really good friends mm-hmm. you know obviously he had a great career at duke and mm-hmm. you know, figured it out you know he like i mean he was actually going to go to duke to play football solely and he finally told me he's like dude i saw you do that that weekend and i was like Dude, that looks kind of cool. I want to try to do that. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, you know, he took the torch on, and I mean, he crushed it. He uh, certainly he, did. Uh, 2013, yep. 2014. Yep. So, uh, yeah, no, cool nonetheless to hear those stories too. Yep, no, absolutely. But uh, you know, let's shift gears a little bit to the pro game. Um, you know, we'll get to the MLL championship 
in a little bit, but let's first start off. You know, you were drafted by the Bayhawks in 2012. Uh, you were traded to the Lizards for two seasons before being traded back. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that, too, because, you know, you saw the Bayhawks team that drafted you win it in 2013, went over to the Lizards, got traded back to the Bayhawks, and the Lizards team you were just with won it in 2015. So what was it like, you know, finally coming back to the Bayhawks organization? And then, uh, you know, how's it been playing for this historic franchise, you know, in professional lacrosse? Yeah, no, so it's funny. I mean, it's funny you bring up kind of like the initial draft, obviously getting drafted by the Bayhawks and getting traded immediately to Long Island. It's funny because I remember I was, I was still in college and we were still going through the tournament. I remember I just like got a call from my pops. And I, like It was like called like 9 o'clock. Uh, mm-hmm. I forget what day it was, like at a.m. And he's like, hey, like, I mean, again, yeah, I was college. I'm like, that's early to me. Uh, <laughs> he's saying like, hey, like you up? Like, no, what's going on? You see this? I go, no, what are you talking about? Said, you know, you got traded, right? I go, no, no one told me. All right, I guess I'm going to play in New York. And I mean, I was planning to move to New York anyway, so it made sense. I was fine with it. Um, you know, enjoyed my time in New York. And then, you know, sometimes kind of things, you know, the pro game is very interesting because you have to be self-motivated. And I think I didn't do a great job of doing that initially uh, for the kind of like, say, first first kind of kind of call it not my first year out but like it gets very difficult like you see a lot of guys go through a sophomore slump right mm-hmm. where you know you're on your own right because you practice once a week on a friday you play on saturdays and for me you know coming out of college i didn't want to make my life about lacrosse mm-hmm. i love i still have a passion for it but you know when i was coming out you really didn't have a lot of guys full-time in the sport like, if you look at kind of the breakdown of the MLL, right, the demographics, like, guys were professionals in some capacity or other, whether, you know, they had other jobs outside of lacrosse, where kind of if I flash forward to today, you know, like, myself, you know, being someone who works in the financial industry is an anomaly. Like, I look at, like, a Matt Abbott, for example, being a financial advisor, that's an anomaly, like, which is very cool and it's beneficial for the sport in terms of growth is that you guys have, you know, now there's people who are full-time in the sport of lacrosse. Mm-hmm. In some capacity, like you're not making a living, obviously, on your contract in terms of your professional contract. But at the same time, as you're coaching high school, college, you're doing private lessons, you have summer teams, what have you, will. Um, so you know, I think that's obviously you know beneficial for the sport, kind of moving forward. But um, you know, in terms of kind of bouncing around, I mean, you know, especially the fact that you're missing out on these championships, those it definitely, I mean, it plays a little bit with you because you're like, damn, am I like a cancer or something? Like, what's going on? Uh, and, you know, it's just kind of sometimes how it kind of, you know, cookie crumbles, so to speak. It is what it is. But, you know, I can't foresee myself being somewhere in the MLL outside of the the, the Bayhawks. Uh, you know, I grew up in New York, Connecticut, uh, northeast lacrosse guy. You know, there's always the battle between the north and the south in terms of who produces the best lacrosse players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with, you know, Maryland. <laughs> That's how I got recruited, uh, M&T Bank. Uh, and, you know, the one thing that I really appreciate about Maryland as a whole, and especially the Bayhawks, is that, you know, in the Northeast, when you go to a lacrosse event, right, like, the only time you ever see lacrosse, like people wearing lacrosse gear or, you know, T-shirts, jackets, what have you, was really around lacrosse events. Sure. Just tournament mm-hmm. games, what have you, will, right? Whereas if you look at, for example, like in Maryland, which I find very cool and interesting, is that you see it all around. Like it's a part of the DNA of the culture, particularly in Annapolis. Mm-hmm. Which I find it very, very unique. Like people 
like in Annapolis, like they know who you are, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool uh, in a sense. You have like a responsibility and, you know, to me, you know, being a part of the Chesapeake Bayhawks, you really have a connection to Annapolis, Maryland as a whole, which again, I, I've never seen that or never experienced that in the sport of lacrosse uh, in the professional rankings, which I think is very, very cool. And, you know, you know, I think it comes down from the top, you know, like our, our owner, uh, Brendan Kelly, BK, as you call it. I mean, he's very passionate. You know, he's not doing this for the money. By any means, just imagine he does for the love of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that he's trying to, you know, create the first for, uh, fully dedicated professional lacrosse stadium, I think shows you how his passion and drive really is. Uh, and, you know, I think that really gets, you know, uh, passed down across the whole organization, especially the team. I mean, at the end of the day, chemistry what really makes it, right? It's, kind of, it's very easy to build chemistry when you're doing everything with somebody, like in the college rankings, right? So mm-hmm. It's very, very hard, though, to do that in the pro league, especially because you practice on Fridays, you play on Saturdays. So it's very, very consolidated, and guys are at different stages in life. But, you know, the closeness of this group, I think, is tremendous. And, again, I think the fact that how many guys you've had that have been there for multiple-year periods really speaks volumes to the organization and how it's run. Um, so, it's uh, you know, it's been, it's been great, uh, to say the least. That's great. I mean, it's, you know, I think that's it's often overlooked, too, like being the hometown team especially in, in a, a hotbed like, you know, the Maryland area, is, it's, it's unique. And I think you hit the nail on the head with that. So, so let's go a little bit into uh, a couple weeks ago and winning that, that championship. What was that experience like being in Denver and finally hoisting that Steinfeld Cup? I will say this. Winning is the funnest thing in the world. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I mean, this league's up to you. I mean, you give up your summers, right? And, you yep. know, you look at kind of our track record. You know, a couple of times of not qualifying for the playoffs. I mean, I even look at my first year, actually, take a step back with the Lizards. And we were up, I think we were up by like 10 goals at halftime on Denver. And I actually ended up dislocating my big toe. I remember that now. Which yeah. I never knew it was actually possible, but that was fun. <laughs> uh, but we literally, we ended up, we were up by 10 goals and we ended up losing that game. So it kind of gave you like, so like, I was, you know, and like winning's fun, like, right? I mean, like, so, I mean, last time I actually you know, again, you look at these tournaments, right? There's only one team that ends up, you know, with a, with a winning record or with a W at the end of it, right? Uh, and you want to be that team. You know, I look at last year where we were just, I mean, we were short by one goal. I mean, we played uh, the Denver Outlaws in the semis. Uh, fortunately, Stephen Kelly went down the game before with a, with a knee. And I kind of had to step up and take faceoffs. And, you know, fortunately, we were just one goal shy from kind of moving on to the next, uh, to the finals that year. But, you know, I mean, this year, you know, I look at it from, you know, you had guys who were very upset last year, how it shook down. We were very fortunate enough to return a lot of the same guys, you know, especially the core individuals. Mm-hmm. And we also ended up rounding it out with some youth uh, from our uh, from our hat up north uh, from Canada. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know and again, I think we all meshed very, very well. And, you know, having it out in Denver was very cool. Experience and especially at these stadiums, like the you know soccer stadium is very cool because again I think it's it makes more sense based on terms of the number of lacrosse fans that are come out. Sometimes these NFL stadiums can be a little big, and you know it's funny though because obviously we were the number one seed. At the same time, we were by no means the home team. Uh, we were definitely outnumbered heavily by the uh, orange and uh, black uh, fanhood, but at the same time as we thrived on that. 
and you know that really got us excited. I mean, we battled Denver a lot. Of, I mean, the way the schedule is kind of structured, a little kind of screwy in a sense. We played Denver four times, although obviously the last time was a little unique because you had kind of different rosters because guys had commitments to their countries in the world indoor games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, realistically, we played them. You know, I'd say kind of three times where you had kind of what your roster expectations would be, and. It's funny because I mean I remember when we went up five nothing. I mean we were all pretty excited. Um, for you know, and I'm like sitting there, I'm like, I, I, you know, these games are about ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there in the back of my head, and I didn't bring it up, but I'm sitting there thinking about my rookie year. Like yeah, like I've seen I've seen teams give up ten goal leads. Like this is kind of nothing. And then like you're sitting there, and we're firing all cylinders because you know we have a lot of great competitors. And like the one thing that was always frustrating, I think us as a team as a whole throughout the year for the Bayhawks was that we always felt we had the pieces to win a championship. Uh, the thing was that we just never put a game together for 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. There was always some sort of lull, like whether, you know, we started down by like four goals in the first or we were down by like six at half. And then like all of a sudden the defense, we would like, you know, hold the team to like one or two goals in the next 30 minutes. So it was always frustrating. We're all of a sudden like, you know, we're finally good clicking, you know, we punched it in the mouth, we're going, these guys are starting to go after one another. And, you know, at halftime, everything's kind of looking pretty good. And all of a sudden, we just went on this, like, I mean, a drought. And, I mean, I, I got to believe it was almost 30 minutes of uh, mm-hmm. not scoring, which you're sitting there. And, like, you know, everyone's kind of looking, watching the score kind of change, never another one, never another one. You're sitting there like, all right, here we go. And, like, you don't want to have a kind of division of between your offense and defense. But, you know, as defensemen, we're sitting there a little bit like, all right, like, guys, come on, like, no, this is very one. Like, let's stop the bleeding here. Uh, and I don't think we did a good job helping Kenny Mass out the face-off X from the wings. They started getting some ground balls from the wings. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my God, like, did we just blow this again? Uh, and then, obviously, I mean, Steele's been a stud all year. He's a stud, obviously, in the Atlanta game, which, again, had a lot of ups and downs as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, put it in the net. And then it was, it was very strange in the sense of just, you know, I mean uh, – you know, it, it was very strange in the regards that I never seen a team implode as much uh, kind of towards the end of it. Uh, kind of in, with Denver, I mean, if you look at it, like, I mean, Steele was clearly on the ground, and all of a sudden, he, I mean, you can make arguments. I, I haven't really watched in terms of whether or not he actually hit Wardo, whatever you will, but, like, I mean, dude, the guy literally, Steele was on the ground, like, literally just cross-checking the back. Like, that's obviously going to draw a flag. It's a dead ball mm-hmm. foul. Like, I mean, like, I, I can't. I'm very perplexed on if you don't really see that, but that obviously definitely happened. And then, you know, obviously that now in turn, instead of getting a face-off, now you have, you know, us getting the ball. And then rookie Andrew Q there just, uh, you know, buried one. And then obviously, you know, they end up going man down further. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, I mean, it doesn't take away from it. I mean, you know, you look at this season and how long it is and how much sacrifice is really made. I mean, it's a 16-game season. We started, you know, Paul in May with training camp. Uh, you play all the way out to October. And you know, I talked mm-hmm. to you guys, I'm trying to think of the last time I played lacrosse in October outside of like fall ball. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I had the privilege of kind of trying out for the USA team uh, before for the field uh, game in the past. But like, I'm just trying to think of like, actually where it's playing outdoor lacrosse where you know, you're worried about like, you know, 40, 50 degree weather, so to speak. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Winning, you know, you sit there and you kind of like wonder, like, why am I giving my summers? Why am I doing all this? And then all of a sudden, you know, once you hold, waste that cup, you're like, ah, uh, yeah, I know why I'm doing it. 
So like it's uh you know sit there and have a drought for say call it nine I mean, yeah nine years, it's tough. Uh, I probably was a little cranky you know mm-hmm. kind of handy of myself you know I think you know finally getting that kind of having that one is pretty tremendous especially as you guys alluded to. Thanks guys missed out on a couple opportunities prior to. Sorry. Yeah, that you know finally got one which is great and you know the celebrated with the group of guys that we've had is also. I think very, very unique. So uh, it's been, yeah, no, it's honestly, it's it's pretty surreal. I mean, the group chat that we have going on, you know, guys, you know, it just ah, it just makes you happier, man. Just put yeah. a little tough in your step in all aspects of life. I, you know, I don't really know how to describe it. I may not be in the best, uh, you know, using my verbiage right now, but it's just, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's awesome, man. Like, that's what you do this for. And, like, to be able to compete at the highest level, you know, college, playing the MLL professionally, compete with, like, it's just, it's really, really cool to say the least. You know, it's awesome. I'm, I'm sure it's really fulfilling. And that's kind of why we, you know, we, we brought up about how, you know, how many times you kind of missed out on it and, you know, to finally get that. Cause, you know, I'm sure you've been kind of starving for that um, since you won it with Duke in 2010. So I, I think, you know, kudos to you for, you know, you and the team getting it done and, you know, you, you deserve it. Oh, thank you guys. Appreciate that. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. The group definitely does. Well, with that, we're going to uh, take a quick break and then we'll get into our five and five segment, learn a little bit more about you, you know, on the lacrosse field, but also off the field as well. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Today's show is being brought to you in part by Stitcher Premium. You can use Stitcher Premium to listen to shows ad-free such as Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine the Lost Trail, or our favorite, the Fantasy Footballers. For only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year, you get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, and comedy albums. Better yet, if you go over to stitcher.com premium and use the promo code lacrosse today, you can get one month free. So head on over to Stitcher, sign up, and get your free trial today. Welcome back. Um, let's dive into our five and five. I'll start with the lacrosse questions first, CJ. Uh, number one, what are some pregame superstitions or routines that you have? So I've kind of gotten a little bit away from it, but I'll give you kind of my high school, college. So I had a playlist that I always used to listen to uh, that would encompass a mix between kind of techno and some rap music. Uh, mm-hmm. Eminem was a staple. Uh, Limb Biscuit, DMX, uh, 50 Cent. Get Rich Some great ones. <laughs> it was a relatively new album, Life's on the Line. Uh, Go to Sleep by Eminem, uh, The Way I Am, uh, you know, and then I, I was also very silent uh, in terms of kind of warming up, just kind of really focused, lasered in, face-off aspect of it, where you just kind of like isolate, get yourself really focused, dive into the game. Uh, I was always very particular in how I kind of put my pads on, always, you know, a certain way each kind of time. Um, and at the same time, though, the big thing you just got to worry about, realize is that you don't want to get too jacked up too soon. Mm-hmm. It's not like bumping like, you know, 
pump up music two, three hours beforehand because right then your adrenaline's going to wear off by game time. Mm-hmm. I actually used to listen to about two hours prior to like very like kind of like soft jam. So like Third Eye Blind, uh, like Sugar Cult, uh, Aqualung, like just stuff that like Oasis, things that kind of keep you kind of in control and then obviously kind of ramp up prior to the game. And I also wouldn't really eat before games. Would eat very little, little, kind of keep a little bit of hungry, kind of be a little hangry, if you will. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, those are kind of, I think, more my, I mean, my main rituals, so to speak. But, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's more preparation related, obviously, now than, you know, like, all right, you know, if, if I don't put my arm guard on the right way, like, oh, my God, you're going to have a bad game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that you actually uh, ended up, Knocking out the second question as well, because my second question was what was the, one of the top songs on your game day playlist. So I'm a big Eminem guy myself, too. I know it's like, it's kind of like cliche to say, but there's just something about, you know, his songs that kind of get you in the mood you know, to go out and, and play. But um, So that was question two. Um, so I'll move on to question three. Who's the lacrosse player you looked up to when you were younger and tried to emulate? Uh, so you know what? I It's interesting. Cause I, so what I did was I honestly took a mixture uh, players' styles and kind of equated to my game. Um, and what's it's interesting because, like, I mean, nowadays I think kids are. I mean, private lessons are very, very big. Like back when I was going through the process, right? Developmental mm-hmm. camps were big. So, like, you know, the local first guy who I really learned from is a guy named by the name of Dan DiPietro. So Dan actually went to Hopkins for a year, uh, or two years actually, and then played at Syracuse. He went to Brewster High School. Uh, and he was the first guy who actually seen like really made it and actually won a national championship in 2004 versus Navy. Mm-hmm. A guy like that. Another name would be of Ryan McClay. So Ryan McClay, like, so Dan was a mean kind of animal, just love inflicting pain on people. Ryan was more of like a cerebral guy. So Ryan McClay, uh, he was, played at Cornell, all world defenseman. Uh, actually, he was actually literally, uh, I forget what year, but, uh, USA team member, multiple years, you know, was considered the best defenseman in the world. And he was just more like a finesse and cerebral guy. He was more like a surgeon, right? He wasn't a butcher. Mm-hmm. Kind of took elements in terms of regard from those guys. Um, and then, like, you know, I mean, I always emulated guys like Brody Merrill. Uh, John Glatzel would be another name that gets, I think should get thrown out there. Uh, just in terms of, you know, guys who are just, you know, kind of legends in the sport, especially on the defensive end. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Those, a lot of those names are great. I was actually at that 2004 uh, final. I was rooting for Navy because my dad went there, um, and I just remember um, that's kind of like another championship, too, that sticks out in my mind that was close, you know, kind of like yours with Notre Dame and Duke. It was just down to the wire, and, you know, Mikey Powell uh, held scoreless till the very end to, to win it. So, I, you know, that's another one that kind of sticks fresh in my mind. You're bringing me back. But, um, yeah, those are some great names on that list. Um, number four, what is your current lacrosse stick set up in terms of shaft, head, and stringing? Yeah, so I'm fortunate enough to be, uh, you know, kind of powered or sponsored by the best in Maverick. Uh, so I end up, I have a caliber shaft, uh, honestly the lightest defensive shaft that I've ever used before. And then on top of it, have a Havoc uh, for my head and using a spring king setup. Uh, so I do, in terms of, you know, kind of, so originally it was actually using soft mesh this year. Mm-hmm. It was a poor decision because mm-hmm. my point absolutely sank. However, the way to hold on the ball is better, but I lost like probably like I think like 10 miles an hour in my shot. I actually ended up switching it up 
right before our game against Denver. Uh, or not the final game, but our end of the year game. Mm-hmm. I was finally actually, actually I was able to finally score. But so I kind of used hard matching. Like I remember Coach Kyle looking at me like, "You're like shooting way harder." I'm like, "Yeah, I know." Like you know, so mm-hmm. lessons learned on that. Uh, but uh, and then also kind of use. I had kind of a gut string across, and then one uh, uh, one hockey lace, and I also have a V. It's funny actually. You can tell the difference in guys in terms of when they graduated based whether or not they have a V in their stick. Uh, <laughs> you guys don't really have they don't have that anymore. But uh, that's kind of the setup that I have on the stick. No, it's funny you mentioned the V because I was I was a double V guy in high school, and then they changed the rules. <laughs> they changed the rules double in uh, double V. Yeah, no, I I had like way too much hold. Um, I don't know if it hel- helped or hurt me, but then they they changed the rules in college, and it took me a while to kind of adapt. And you know, I'm. Sure. I'm I ended up, you know, adapting, but it was it was funny because nowadays, like you said, like no one uses it. Like even like the the youth. I mean, I think they still can if they want to, but you know, there's just really no point because you're gonna have to change it eventually. But no, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, but our, our, my final question for lacrosse is number five. What has been your favorite venue to play lacrosse at? Ooh, wow. So, all right, yeah, we're going. I know exactly what it is. So we're gonna go to Clockner <laughs> Stadium in Virginia. Okay. So my thought—it's so funny. I I talked to Steel Stanwick about it because I love busting his chops a little bit because he's, <laughs> he's one of the nicest guys in the world. So what's always great at Duke was that we would we'd always be ranked number one, number two in the country start of the year. And you know the bet, what makes Coach Janowski great is not his X's and O's because every guy at that level is great at X's and O's. Mm-hmm. His ability to understand the journey, the highs and lows of that journey, and then ultimately put people in the right spots to make them successful in championship weekend is really what makes them different uh, from, I think, a lot of coaches uh, in Division One rankings. But that being said, though, is that, so generally speaking, what would happen at Duke, we would usually go, like, say, two and three in the end of the year. Everyone else says Duke sucks. You know, they're not good, overhyped. Mm-hmm. The beauty of it, too, is now Dino controls us because he's like, oh, the media has, you know, said you guys suck. You guys suck. <laughs> uh, so, but what was always interesting is that usually you kind of went two and three. We would go on a pretty big run, and then we'd start ACC play. And, you know, people always talk about kind of rivalries, what have you will. And, like, it was always funny because when we played Virginia, we always used to get excited for that game. And Virginia used to be always number one when we used to play them, I feel like. And I'm being honest. We used to go there, play them, whether it be in Costigan in our place or Klockner. And, like, the environment in Klockner is very cool, right, because you have – the grass is probably the most best miniature grass out there. You have people in the stands, people on the hill. You're packing this place, 10,000-plus people. And it's just very on top of each other. You're in enemy territory. And, you know, everyone's, all oh, Virginia, the Cavaliers, this is the year, blah, blah, blah. And we used to go in there. And when I say – like beat, like I'm talking like absolutely embarrassed them. Like, <laughs> it was literally like like four or five plus goal games, and so like you know it's one of those things where we just absolutely I don't know we just always had a blast there, always you know won and always kind of just played your heart. So like in terms of like stadiums, I got to go Klockner, uh, kind of sticking it to the Cavs. I love it. That's great. No, that's that's a unique answer because you know a lot of people. Um, you know, usually pick like their their home stadium or whatever. I actually a guy like Jake Bernhardt though, he he picked, you know, he he liked um playing at Navy. 
he felt like he had his best games there, you know, and necessarily. So sometimes it is like the away venue. Um, so yeah, I love that answer. That's, that's great. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, gr- I mean, that's a close second in my opinion. I mean, mm-hmm. I look at that stadium, like just terms of the history on it, the battles, like the fact that I get to play my professional games there is really, really cool. I mean, you only look at some of the college games that I played there. It's a very, very unique venue to say the least. It's cool. I mean, we're very fortunate to play in a lot of unique venues, but that's one that definitely sticks up there too is uh Navy Memorial uh, Stadium. Awesome. All right, Adam, you want to go with the life-related questions? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so first one, heading back uh, to your Duke days, what was your favorite class uh, while you were at Duke? Ooh, my favorite class. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, Adam, dude, that's like almost – I'm graduating in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> favorite class. This one that always trips the people up the most, to be honest with you, for the most part, because they're they're going back. I'm, I'm really taking a stroll down memory lane here. <laughs> I thought we didn't go to uh, school for class now. <laughs> you know, one of like my early classes that was pretty interesting was I took a lot of cultural or uh, evolutionary anthropology classes. Okay. Um, uh, which was kind of interesting. Uh, I'm just trying to think of what I actually learned in those, but those are like really really cool. Uh, took some good stuff on uh, crusades. I took an Israeli uh, class on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict as well, which was very, very, very interesting. Uh, I was a history major in college, so I did like stuff on World War One too uh, and, and two as well. But yeah, these cultural anthropology classes are like very, very fascinating in terms of kind of evolution. You kind of look at different skeletons, you know, see kind of the tracking, kind of humans evolved over time was pretty interesting. Awesome. A um, little bit different than we'll, we'll head back to now. Okay, um, what are what, <laughs> what are uh, what are some hobbies and act, or activities that you enjoy doing when you're not playing lacrosse? Yeah, I got to start learning some hobbies. I'm like do a list of golf right now. Uh, okay. it turns out a lot of people do it for business, but uh, I'd say my biggest hobby is so I travel a lot for work uh, domestically. But uh, one of my big things is I love traveling abroad. So I try to go to three to five countries each year. Uh, I'm very big on experiences. I love kind of going around and experiencing, uh, you know, different places to see how people live, uh, meet different people from different backgrounds. Uh, You know, I mean, I look at this year alone, uh, talking, went to Berlin, so actually Dublin, Ireland, to Kilkenny, Ireland, went to Berlin, Germany, uh, uh, Germany, uh, Greece, went to uh, Budapest, Hungary, went to Norway, was in Mexico actually last week. I've probably done about, say, 28, 29 countries. That's great. Well, that, that kind of leads into my next question. I, I, I feel like sure. you probably answered it already, but like, what's, what's your ideal vacation? It seems like it, it's a lot of different things. So... I have the attention span of a gnat. I need to be moving. Like me sitting on a beach for call it three, four or five days is just not feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I try to do is when I travel a lot is I try to balance between, you know, kind of do historical kind of touristy things, like go to museums, sure. uh, also, you know, culinary experience, culinary stuff, like try like local delicacies. I mean, there's certain lines I will draw, but, you know, I'm pretty adventurous easier from that standpoint. I also experience kind of the nightlife aspect of it. You know, I, I, I really believe there's a, you know, I think some people have a tendency of waiting to travel much later in life, like when they're like 40, 50 plus. 
Mm-hmm. Right? But that experience is going to be so much different. Where when you're, say, call it, you know, I mean, I'm 29 now. But, like, you know, your experience when you travel these places where I want to see, like, all the cool culture aspects, but I also want to try to experience the nightlife as well. Sure. Uh, um, so, you know, I try to kind of balance that. Sometimes I do get a little overzealous where, like, I got to kind of wait, you have to sleep at some point. But, <laughs> you know, love kind of traveling, like, you know, group, mixed groups, kind of bounce around. Um, and generally speaking, I'm usually kind of the travel tour guide, so I do a lot of in-depth research. Okay. On these places, because it's interesting. Like, I mean, like if you really look kind of like deep down and try to figure out how to travel, like, travel places, there's not a lot of, I think, travel sites that are really geared towards kind of people in their late 20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. Like where like they want to do all these cultural aspects at the same time. They also want to go out. Like so, you have to like really do a deep dive. You know, talk to people. Maybe they have some people who are from there, get experiences to kind of do things as local. Uh, but like, I mean, like when I build out these itineraries to excel things. Uh, they're pretty extensive because um, you want to maximize your time, right? So you don't want to necessarily be, you know, going from the east side of a city to the west back to the east side, right? You want to be very efficient. So I try to maximize my time when I'm in these places. I would say you sound like me when I just took – I don't travel nearly as much as you. Um, I just took a trip, though, to New Zealand back in 2018, and um, there's just so much to do. I only got to go to the North Island, but – I was like, all right, I'm going to stop at this city and this day. I was in a different, you know, city each day because I wanted to, again, maximize my time. I got like a rental van. Um, but, you know, I, I think you're, you're spot on with that too is a lot of people wait to travel. Um, and I'm really glad that I kind of just, you know, jumped into it. And, uh, and you know, I, I too did like a lot of research because like you said, it, it is, you know, I went out to some bars and stuff. And, you know, it's not really geared towards – uh, you know, a younger traveler, so to speak, on some of these travel sites. So I don't know. I, that definitely resonates with me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like going on TripAdvisor and seeing that the best restaurant, the Olive Garden, is just not, not <laughs> well, well, that that perfectly kind of leads into my next question. You talked about being an adventurous eater a little bit. Uh, what what What's your favorite meal if you had to pick one? And I, I think I know the answer, uh, but do you prefer to dine in, take out, or cook at home? Uh, so like uh, – so I, I travel a lot for work. I mean, I'm basically on the road call next four days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm in Columbus, Ohio right now, actually, uh, going to Louisiana. Uh, last week I was in Albany, Indianapolis, uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, and prior okay. I was in London. So like, cooking doesn't happen too much yep. for me, unfortunately, which I want to learn because my parents are both excellent cooks. Uh, I was actually very spoiled. I thought everyone's parents were excellent cooks. Little did I realize <laughs> that as I start talking, interacting with people. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, in terms of going, I mean, during going out, I mean, like, so I grew up, I mean, I grew up Italian. So, like, you know, pastas, like ravioli was always a go-to, meatballs. Uh, my dad was also a big steak guy. So, like, steak, uh, we used to do, like, kind of like these, like, um, potato, like, kind of big chips that were, like, really, really good. And you just kind of crush them with, like, crushed red pepper, so anything spicy. Mm. But I will say where my kind of palate has changed because red meat absolutely kills you. Like, if you sit in there crushing, you know, 10 ounces of steak, like, every night, red meat, you're just, like, going to, like, a food coma. Yeah. Uh, so I've actually really been big on now is fish a lot. So things like salmon, things like halibut, uh, eating super healthy. Also, as you realize, so I never actually, like, when you come out of school, right, like, you know, when you're in college and you're playing across you know, call you know, a couple hours a day running and lifting, right? Like, you yeah. can eat whatever you want. You can eat yeah. McDonald's. You know, you can go to, like, Cookout, which is down uh, down south. It's the kind of a fast, uh, uh, 
fast food uh, barbecue uh, chain down in uh, good shakes. Down, yeah, so you know, okay, good, perfect. Right, you're yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, so, you know, you sit there and you're like, you can eat this stuff, no problem. And then, like, I remember like a year out of college where you're not working out as much. And also, like, not that I got like packed on a ton of LBs, but all of a sudden, like, you kind of look at your hips a little bit and you're like, yo, like, something hanging a little bit here. Like, what's going on? <laughs> like, you got to, like, all right, like, you know what? Like, we got to, like, you know, you know, bacon, like, yeah, maybe turkey bacon. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, all of a sudden, like, and you're like sitting there, like, you know, you two years ago would be like, wow, like, what are you doing? And then, like, um, you know, so you're like, kind of like, obviously, you got to change your diet. So I started, I've eaten much healthier, and it's actually amazing. I, I, in terms of like, I think my body composition, like, I was, I was always like, I mean, listen, I was fit in college, but like now, like, I'm, you know, it's 80% of it's honestly actually legitimately eating. So, like, you know, I kind of avoid kind of junk food, all that. You know, you know, I think, I guess, in terms of like favorite. If I had like a pick a favorite cuisine, like so, like I'm an Italian snob when it comes to Italian food, and go. honestly, like you can do like a lot of nice restaurants in New York City, but the unfortunate reality is when you grow up Italian, no one makes better Italian food than your mom. And yep, your, agreed. Right, you can go to the nicest restaurant in the world, the, the meatballs are not going to taste the same because you didn't grow up on them. It's just the yep. unfortunate reality of it. Uh, so I usually don't do Italian restaurants in New York City at all, or anywhere for that matter. Uh, but like things like Thai food, for example where I kind mm-hmm. of really, you know, figure out sushi is also kind of another big thing. I think I kind of like staples upon in the diet uh, today. Awesome. And then kind of to, to wrap up the, the personal questions, what's a book on your bookshelf currently uh, or that you have on the road that you'd recommend to a teammate or friend? Uh, you're killing me, man. I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to do like, you're, you really exposed me on this one. I'm trying to do the last time I read a book. That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, I'm ingrained much. into my job, so I read a lot for my job. Yep. So, like, no, a lot more, uh, so uh, a lot more kind of technology-related stuff no um, in terms of kind of investments that I read. So I kind of like TechCrunch uh, and then kind of, you know, kind of catch up on like artificial intelligence, machine learning, yep. uh, thing, 5G, kind of those things. Uh, awesome. Yeah, I, that's great. I got, you know, that's a 2020 goal of mine to actually start finally like sitting down and reading because people give a lot of great suggestions. Yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, the fact that I'm traveling constantly, you know, it would make sense uh, to kind of pick that up. So that's Perfect. that's uh, that's going to be a new and improved uh, me. There we go. Me and Adam are big on audiobooks. Like that's I honestly I don't think I've read a book cover to cover and probably like since high school. But the audiobooks are always a good way for me, and I still consider it reading. You know, obviously, I, I think it's better maybe to read like actual book, but um, you still get the information. And I don't know, I feel like I can breeze through books a lot quicker if, I, if I'm if i listening to it. But I don't know, that's just my two cents. <laughs> yeah, point to know, I appreciate Like, So my biggest thing is I've, I got to start. So like, I'm like, mm-hmm. what do you guys, yep. like, you guys, like Amazon here, like Google, like, I, I, like, where do you start on this process? Funny enough, I, uh, if you go to your like local library, now I'm going to sound like a real nerd about this, but if you go to like your library, they actually have free apps that you can get a bunch of audiobooks that way. So I don't even really pay for any of them. There's like two apps that I have on my phone. I haven't been to the library in, again, like probably three years. But uh, I can just download – you just hook up your information to the account, and then you can just download audiobooks. And usually they have everything you kind of need, maybe not the new releases, but for the most part the classics and, um, you know, like anything from self-help books to, you know, business books to nonfiction to fiction. They'll have everything. Interesting. All right. Yeah, no, because I, I really, 
that's on my to-do list. I really got to kind of get into that. And, like, to your point, I think, like, reading can be very tough just if you're on the go constantly. So mm-hmm. I do think audio books, I have a tendency, like, when I'm in transit to listen to music more, uh, where, I mean, it's all well and good, but at the same time, is you're really not necessarily growing. And it, it rotates for, for me. I don't know about you, Adam. I'll listen to podcasts for, like, three months straight, and then I'll get sick of them, and then I'll go to music, and then I'll go to, you know, audio books. So I think it kind of... You know, it's good to kind of rotate through things too, but um, I don't know. So that's just me. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, well, let's get one more piece of advice actually from you though. Um, what is some advice that you have for a young player that's looking to one day play lacrosse professionally? The biggest thing is for me, it was always about playing, uh, you know, where I think people get very focused on is private lessons. Like obviously you have to have the mechanics, and the fundamentals, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I, a big portion of that is obviously driven through doing one-on-one lessons or, you know, small group settings. But to me, what I felt like got me to be successful was always playing. Like I was a mercenary for mm-hmm. hire, and that was very well known. Where, you know, if you know someone had determined like, hey, like we only have nine kids showing up, can you play? Or like, you know, say we were going up to like indoor, and like there's a game. I played and like team following like, hey, we're missing somebody. Can you can you just anyone from you guys want to play? I would always play mm-hmm. because you know at the end like lacrosse is not rigid like football, right? Where like football is like if this happens you do this, but if this happens then you do that, right? You know it's kind of like you call, almost quite a little bit soccer, kind of like a beautiful game where there's a lot of free flow mm-hmm. and you got to play to have different experiences and kind of cha- like challenge yourself how you're going to react to that or like try different things through playing and I think sometimes that gets lost with a lot of guys, a lot of folks where they're just so focused on just you know private lessons shooting 200 shots with someone someone fundamentally working on the mechanics constantly almost like it's like golf but like you just got to go out there and play uh, mm-hmm. it's very different it's a very different situation it's very listen anyone could shoot on the run right uh with no one on them right like, how can you handle someone on your you know a stick on you or like you know, how are you dodging someone so that, you know, you get your hands free? So, like, those are the things that I think, that, you know, that I think is kind of forgotten a little bit. Guys really need to go out there and just play the game. No, that's, that's great advice. You know, I think that's refreshing to hear, too, you know, in a day and age where we, we try to be so specialized and kind of narrow it down to science. Sometimes it's more of an art, you know, just going out and, and playing. But uh, no, this has been great, CJ. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, where can people find you on social media online? Uh, social media game. Uh, so yeah, I have uh, I have an Instagram uh, at uh, CJ Nine uh, ER. So CJ Niner mm-hmm. uh, would be the uh, the handle. Awesome. No, again, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We're we appreciate you coming on, and you know, congrats again on a terrific season with Chesapeake and winning that MLL championship. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate the time.